Tandem Talk is a quarterly financial podcast sharing history, insight, and market commentary from Tandem's investment team. This podcast was created to give our clients and partners an opportunity to eavesdrop on the team's conversations. It gives the listener a way to hear from our team, understand our thought process and investment philosophy, and get to know a little bit more about us. Since we can't have you all in our office, we thought we would take our office to the listener and give you a seat at the table. We hope you enjoy listening as much as we do creating Tandem Talk. We invite you to join the conversation. Ask us a question by emailing us at information at tandemadvisors.com or suggest a topic for us to cover on our next episode. And now we turn you over to Tandem's investment team of John Carew, Billy Little, Ben Carew, and Jordan Watson. You're listening to Tandem Talk. Welcome back, everybody. This is Tandem Talk 14. I am John Carew. As always, I'm joined by Billy Little. Hello, everyone. Ben Carew. Hey, how's it going? And Jordan Watson. Hey, everyone. And together we comprise the Tandem Investment Team. We are here to let you eavesdrop into our nonsensical conversations. (laughs) Um, A lot has happened since we did Tandem Talk 13 in August, and yet, in some ways, not much has happened at all. Has anything really (laughs) happened? Mark is back to where it was. In middle of August, market really hadn't been anywhere in two years, has it? Has not. I mean, like a roller coaster. It was an interesting ride, but it started and ended in the same place, right? Sure has. All right, so Billy, why don't you just talk about what's happened since August? So really, nothing. <laughs> End of podcast. No, oh, no. It's, I have other topics. Just, you know, from beginning of August through last week of October, market did correct down ten, eleven percent. But today was a pretty good day. Markets pretty much clawed back everything that it was down in those three months within the past two trading weeks. A lot of it has has definitely been driven by yields. The 10-year got up to 5% third week of October, and is now, I believe it finally closed below 4.5% for the first time in the past couple months. That 5% peak in the 10-year also sort of coincided with the recent low. And as yields have retreated, that's when the market has really taken off. Correct. That's sort of why I'd say nothing has changed. It seems like nothing has changed in the last two years. We started talking about it this time two years ago, Thanksgiving of 21, about how yields mm-hmm. all of a sudden started to dominate the direction of the market. If you could tell us where yields were going to be, we could tell you probably with some sort of accuracy, some sort of confidence where the market was going to be. And that trade is clearly still alive, right? Absolutely. So interest rates are driving equities right now. It was pretty clear today. You looked at what performed the best, utilities, REITs. Yeah, regional banks, regional banks really were up hard. Yeah, the regional bank index was up eight percent today. Yeah, small caps were up five or six percent today. I mean, it was pretty wild. That's a great point. And right before I walked in here, I had CNBC on. It's okay sometimes, <laughs> but uh, Pisani was on. There goes that sponsorship. Yeah, Pisani <laughs> was on, and I'm not trying to pick on Pisani, but he was talking about how clearly the market is down with soft landing or no landing and all i could think of okay utilities are leading the way higher reits are leading the way higher this has nothing to do with soft landing or no land right it has everything to do with what just happened to interest rates lower for longer well as interest rates crept up in september and october what absolutely got crushed Correct. were utilities right it was i mean it's been getting too extreme yeah now it's this snapback everyone was short selling off utilities reits now you have a lot of money flowing back in. So let me jump in here for just a second because we're sort of talking about 
I guess it's all the same thing, but uh, but I sort of view it as, as two different things. So rates are, at least in the short run, the driver of, of equities right now. We are, we're all in agreement there, generally speaking, right? Yes. yes. Last time we were together for Tandem Talk 13, it was titled something about soft landing or no landing. So here we are three months almost to the day later talking about soft landing or no landing. Clearly, interest rates now, since their peak in October, are expecting lower rates, and that's a reflection of economic expectations, I believe. And I saw something interesting today. I've heard, Billy, you've talked about it before, these sort of rolling pockets of lower growth or slower growth. I don't know if any of you paid any attention to Home Depot's earnings release today. Mm -hmm. The commentary around it was fascinating to me. They do far better when there is a lot of real estate activity. And the lack of real estate activity, meaning there aren't enough people selling, buying new homes, right? Because nobody wants an 8% mortgage if you got a 3% mortgage. But I just thought that was interesting that it's starting to show up in a place like Home Depot. One of the things I'm curious about is where else is this showing up? If it's not universally so, if we're not in a recession, um, but some pockets of the economy might have an appearance of being recessed. Can we talk about that, where it's showing up, where it's not? And and if this recession is ever going to come about en masse or if we're just going to roll through it? It's clearly been in manufacturing. Yeah. So manufacturing is measured by ISM. That's been below 50, which is considered contraction for at least the past 12 months, probably longer. So that is that's definitely been recessionary. That ties into transportation. Transportation has kind of just fallen off a cliff. You're starting to see, and I think what actually started driving yields lower, as you mentioned, John, weakness in the economy, you're starting to see it in the past two weeks show up in some of the numbers. ISM non-manufacturing services has been trickling down every single month and is getting closer to that 50 number. The labor report. 50 number meaning that it's... Actually now contracting. Correct. That's the way that ISM numbers are read. Correct. Anything above 50 is expansionary. Anything below is contraction. Um, the labor market is, is start, starting to weaken. Consumer con- confidence has been down since since June or July, but that also fluctuates I'm, with the I'm stock market. I'm curious about the labor market, just for a little, little color on that. Is that because um, hiring demand has slowed? Or because there are finally enough applicants for jobs or workers in the workforce. I know an unemployment ticked up, but it, but I'm just curious: is that employer driven or employee driven? So when j- the jolts numbers come out, one of the line which items, is uh, job, job openings, openings and labor, labor turnover. Turn. Okay, they measure quits, so the rate at which employees are quitting, and they also measure the rate at which employees are getting laid off. Now coming out of uh, COVID. And into 2021, or really through 2021, the quits rate was quite high. People were quitting jobs because they were finding jobs elsewhere, which would pressure wages to be higher because it's a very competitive labor market at that time. Now, since really 2022, throughout 2022 and into this year, quits have been moving lower. So people aren't quitting their jobs anymore, but layoffs have been rising. And we were talking about where are you starting to see it show up? Gosh, one of the most talked about topics just six months ago, was the financial sector and banks. And we just touched on banks briefly because they rallied so much today because of what's happening in interest rates. That's viewed as a giving banks a little bit of breathing room, right? But amongst the five, you exclude JP Morgan, the five next largest banks 
have laid off uh, a number of workers over the past few months. I think the city CEO um, was out within the past week saying that city could lay off 10% of their workforce. And so you're starting to see these, and that's just the major banks. I would imagine that it's probably uh, maybe less healthy amongst the regional banks who have more uh, commercial real estate exposure than perhaps some of these large banks because the commercial real estate space has been rough. But that's, I don't know, that's just another pocket. John, you asked sort of where where it's showing up. And I'm surprised at the lack of conversation around banks still because really none of the issues, except except for deposits flying off the shelves, and that was what started all of it. But the underlying issues that gave people fear about banks, have they changed? Billy Jordan, I mean, do y'all think that they've really changed at all? Past couple of days with how quickly yields have come down, right? Their assets are now worth more, right? So maybe there's less of a concern about if they had to tap into their available for sale securities or re-account for held to maturity, um, that they wouldn't be taking as big of a haircut. So the equity value wouldn't get hit as much. But that's just like a trick. I mean, that is why you saw them rally today. But I mean, I'm talking about the underlying, yeah, underlying the commercial real estate portfolios out there. Let's revisit for just a second. When we had three notable bank failures, we had some serious disintermediation where deposits were flowing out dramatically because interest rates had risen so sharply, so quickly that banks couldn't keep up. Correct. Could it's not just be a run. Right? It's it was just a, a run traditional banks, run. Right? This isn't a traditional run. Has that run. abated? I mean, has has there been an equilibrium established where definitely not hearing outflows about that. are not You're meaningful? Not hearing about it. So I, I think banks have now increased what they're willing to pay. I mean, before, they were still paying nothing when you could go out and get a 5% on a short-term treasury or a money market. I think for the most part, banks have probably increased what they're willing to pay on deposits. But now it seems like banks are starting to address those issues, not dealing with the run on a bank, talking about laying people off. I mean, that is a co- that is a cost-saving maneuver, and you are worried about your costs if you are worried about... Lending the- is being cut back. I mean, anecdotal evidence. I talked to a couple of bankers in this area, not going to name names, um, but they both have talked about how commercial lending has just pretty much stopped within their banks. Well, and we all have interest rate shock, right? That, and then uh, if you're unsure of what's to come, you're going to tighten your standards. So I'm curious about that, and this is just conjecture on our part as we sit around this table and, and talk, but but how much of it really do you believe is uncertainty around the future as opposed to just you're so used to paying nothing for the last decade and a half, and now a line of credit that used to be 3% is 8 So are you really going to draw that down? I'm sure in time, 8% might become normalized. but It's going to take a while. I, yeah. I think it's a combination, though. I mean, there are people out there that, are, that would not buy a house in this market because of what the 30-year mortgage is, right? But I think that there, to, to Billy's point, there is also a lot of uncertainty based on what the future holds. I mean, today, the market is now, and we keep talking about today. Today is November 14th. CPI number came out today, and the market has taken off after that. But today, all of a sudden, the market is now pricing in three uh, rate cuts. 
three or four. Into next year. First being as early as March. Like, yeah, like yeah, I think months. March is maybe still at like a third or something like that, and it's two-thirds of mm-hmm. 66% chance of a rate cut by, by May. That's probably, I mean, if you're getting into three rate cuts next year, you're probably starting to get into an, an area where perhaps there's a little more uh, froth in the economy than there otherwise would hopefully be. Let's put a bow on the bank conversation and pivot here. Um, banks are faced with challenges because loan demand has fallen off a cliff. Not loan demand, their willingness to lend. Okay. It's not, it's not necessarily supply. demand. It's, right. it's their loan willingness to actually lend the money. They're, they're no longer willing to lend the money. They're tightening their standards. Okay. Good to know. Um, they're also faced with the threat of potentially bad loans in commercial real estate. So they're, they're, they're pulling in, which usually is a precursor for at least slowing economic growth, right? If banking activity dries up, then economic activity typically dries up on the heels of that, right? If you're not named J.P. Morgan, you're laying off people. Got mm-hmm. it. But have we entered this twilight zone world that we do enter from time to time where for equities, bad economic news is actually good news. And I see heads nodding. So let's talk about this. But, but if that is the case, then how long is that sustainable? If the economic news is actually bad. You saw that on the jobs number, right? I mean, the jobs number that started off in November, it was a less than ideal jobs report. You saw the market jump on it, right? I mean, jump higher on that news. And so bad news was good news. I think that sort of goes full circle to the conversation, to where we started the conversation, which is yields. Mm -hmm. Why is bad news good news? Bad news is good news because it feeds into the peak Fed narrative, which means interest rates have topped out, which means interest rates are heading lower, which means all of these issues that interest rates are causing are going to be alleviated. To me, it's this sort of like one dimensional read through on what's going on. It's just yields lower. That's good. Right. There's no consideration of sort of why they're going lower. Yeah. Right. Or what could other effects, other factors that could affect the market, whether it be earnings or valuations, whatever it is, those are irrelevant because of how much of the market is just driven by interest rates right now and by yields. I mean, you can. Well, we already talked about how you can see it bleeding through in the assets that are doing the best right now. Yeah, I would say as long as we avoid a hard landing or an out, you know, a pretty severe recession, then slower growth, low growth, soft landing um, is actually beneficial to equities because then you've got longer term interest rates coming down as as growth slows. Right. I think the Q3 GD4, or GDP print was 4.9 percent and the Atlanta Fed now for this quarter or for Q4 is what, 2 So you're seeing growth really begin to slow. You're seeing inflation come down quite a bit. So the mixture of slowing economic growth and lower inflation is sort of a Goldilocks scenario for equities because of what it does to yields. And inflation is coming down because the Fed is succeeding in, in fighting it. They're sort of curtailing economic activity, right? I mean... It seems like their preference, which isn't would be, great long-term news for businesses. No, it seems like their preference would be to slow everything down rather than allow inflation to creep back up. Which, Jordan, to that Goldilocks scenario that you just sort of painted, I'd sort of counter and say that to me seems like it's where the market is being short-sighted. 
right, with these things. Because if you're talking about slowing growth, that is a negative. I mean, that is a headwind for things, right? I get that that would allow interest rates to head lower, which mm-hmm. gets back into what the market is so focused on right now, right? But sort of going further out, the valuation picture is not so compelling right now. I mean, I think the S&P no. is trading at 18 and a half times 18 earnings. And a half next year, 2024 earnings. Strip out tech bubble and COVID, and we would consider those to be expensive in basically any other market. So you have not necessarily compelling valuations with mm-hmm. slowing growth. That's not always the best picture. And couple that with Ben, I feel like a couple of podcasts ago, you were it wasn't interest rates that you were talking about. It was the strength of the dollar that you were talking about as being the, the mm-hmm. tail that wagged the dog. Mm-hmm. And the dollar is extremely strong against some major currencies right now. I saw it's 150 yen to the dollar now. I mean, I don't know when. And it's come down significantly in two weeks, just like ever. It's all one trade. Yeah, yields in the dollar are coupled. But that is penal to multinationals, right? I mean, they have to bring home those foreign currencies and and repatriate them as dollars. And they're stronger dollars. They're buying fewer of them when they bring their their offshore sales home, right? That's that's a long-term Mm-hmm. Growth slower, mm-hmm. headwind, right? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I just kind of wanted to put a bow on the valuation yeah. thing because we did just talk about eighteen and a half times earn- forward earnings on the S and P, and that's not necessarily the most compelling. What is interesting, though, and why I find valuation sort of curious right now, is if you talk about looking at where valuations are relative to where they've been over the past three or five years, then they do look compelling. And they, they are really below cheap. average, right? Yeah, <laughs> if you're just looking at where valuation's been over the past, just call it five years. Generally speaking, things look good. But if you go out beyond COVID, basically, and look out across 10 years or 15 years or 20 years at valuations, then they are far less compelling. And so I think, I think that is what is interesting about this market as well, is you have some people that look at data and can go, this is compelling, and you have other people that look at data and go, no, it's not. Right. You're crazy for thinking that this is compelling, <laughs> there are right? definitely two sides to that coin, right? Yeah, and there always are, right? That's what always makes a market. That's what makes a market. But now it just seems even sort of more polar opposite. Now, plug for tandem. What we do that I think is so nice in terms of how we look at things is we look across multiple time periods, right? right? We consider what something looks like on a three, five. We consider what something looks like on a 10 or 15-year time period. And so we're sort of getting those mixed signals. So I had a conversation the other day with an FA that asked, hey, what do valuations look like in your model? And in our model, things just sort of look yeah, eh, fairly valued. Fairly, <laughs> fairly valued. But it is, it is unlike any other time period in which we've seen those fairly valued mm-hmm. because if we just looked on the short end of our model, everything is a screaming buy, right? Not everything, but yeah. generally speaking, you're getting, you're getting cheaper signals on the short right. end. But we still have we have companies that are showing up as being multiple standard deviations undervalued on their three or five year time periods and close to a standard deviation overvalued on the back end of that. So you yeah. sort of get this no signal, but what you're really getting is two very different signals that well, lead to no signal. I think that's an interesting um, thing and kudos to you for, for going back to this topic before we moved on because I think there is a little more meat left on this bone. First we talked about two very different markets the last time we were together. And that's still the case. And it's the case because earnings look very different for those two different 
mm-hmm. pieces of the market, right? And so you do have some high growth, high valuation companies out there that aren't in our portfolio, but but that people still find attractive and compelling. And then you have the rest of the market that really hasn't participated in the last year and a half, mm-hmm. two years, two plus, years. Yeah, um, it's, it's it's actually. I mean, the average stock through October was negative for the year. The average stock, not not any specific index. So you have that, but then you also have, and I don't hear anybody outside of these walls, these walls meaning my office, I have this conversation with myself all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I don't hear anybody talking about um, for 15 years, the market benefited from, forget what the economy was doing, it was irrelevant. If, if, uh, you know, just in isolation, the market benefited from what we would call multiple expansion, right? Mm-hmm. P.E. ratios and interest rates are inversely correlated. When all things being equal, when interest rates decline, stock P.E. ratios or valuations would be inclined to rise. And now we've experienced the dramatic reversal of that. Mm-hmm. You're going to get equity repricing and it seems to me that we just have a few equities that haven't been repriced yet, mm-hmm. but most everything else has, which is why in our model, everything looks blah. fair, yeah. right? Or blah, as you <laughs> said. I think this leads us naturally into a conversation about investor sentiment. And is it fair to say that for the first time in a long time, um, literally... 15 years, do equities now have competition for investment dollars, and should they? Yes, and I think they, they've had competition for at least a year, if not longer, um, which is, I think, why you've seen... We're talking most, about specifically from fixed income, right? Correct, yeah. which is why you've seen as the short end has increased over the past year and a half, two years, year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, why you've seen the majority of equities do nothing. I think it's they go hand in hand, um, as, you've, as you've seen the short end, where you can actually get some return on your cash. And you're actually now, now that we know that inflation is even lower today, um, that real return is, is higher. I mean, the short end didn't really move today. So you're still getting five, five and a quarter, 5.3 on a one mm-hmm. month, three month. Um, so if headline inflation is what, 3.3, 3%, whatever it came in to be, that's 2.3 or whatever, do the math, two, 2% real return. So you actually are getting You know, when something. you put it in those terms, though, that is seemingly less compelling. When <laughs> I hear five and a third, I'm like, that is very compelling. And then you're like... <laughs> Hey, how about two? And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. But, you know maybe but, equities are okay. But when you go back and you look at where markets started to struggle was when the real return was in that 2 to 2.5% range. Yeah. It's really just sort of the unwinding of what happened coming out of the financial crisis. One of the first projects I ever worked on here at Tandem was when I was just a, a lowly minion. And John, you were writing a Tandem report. And I think it, it, I think it was a Tandem report, but we... We were talking about the crowding out effect 
that happened to investors coming out of the financial crisis because interest rates went to zero and the Federal Reserve balance sheet was expanding and investors that had once had a home and things like fixed income were crowded out of those investments. You could no longer get your 4 or 5% on treasury, so you had to go and take introduce risk to your portfolio to be able to get those income needs elsewhere, right? And it's why the pay-to-wait conversation of owning a stock like AT&T that has a 5% dividend yield, and you just, you just take that dividend yield and you just live off those dividends, right? I mean, it's why that became a, a more important investment tool for folks because the Federal Reserve made it so that you could not save money, which is what you do with a T-bill, right? I mean, that is a saving that is a it's savings not an vehicle. investment vehicle. It's a savings vehicle. Right. But people were forced out of the savings vehicle, out of T-bills and CDs, and forced into utilities, telecom right. stocks, staples, whatever it was, right? So that they could get that bond-like proxy, which it's not a bond proxy. It's a stock. <laughs> but they were getting that dividend yield, right? And that worked for them for, I don't know, gosh, seven, eight-year period coming out of the financial crisis, now you have the reverse happening, right? John, I mean, you, you were in my office talking to me about this recently, where you're having, <laughs> it's not crowding out anymore. I don't know that it's crowding in <laughs> yeah. to T-bills, right? But it's just it's equilibrium. right? Yeah. It's mm-hmm. just, if you are more comfortable owning CDs or treasuries or fixed income, not because it's your long-term growth strategy, but because it's a safe place to produce current income, you've been forced out of that for a long time. And now that, that window is open to you again, right? And so I think it's perfectly natural. They're healthy, natural, that, that people who seek that should return to that type of vehicle. What I have had conversations about, which I think is unfortunate, is that, look, if you own equities, I don't want to offend any anybody listening to this. If you own equities for income, you now have an alternative. If you own equities for growth, this is not an alternative. A a, a 5% yield on growth a T-bill. Growth of capital. Is, right, right, not a growth, not growth, a growth strategy. Right. Growth, growth of, capital. of capital. If you require growth of capital, 5% nominal rate of return, 2% real rate of return isn't going to get it done for you. That money... That's probably not what the financial planning equities, tools are. Right? That money belongs in equities. And and we're not an income strategy. So we love to see that money being repatriated. And Ben, you specifically mentioned AT&T. Have you looked at a chart of AT&T <laughs> lately? I mean, for a long time, that thing really did be- behave like a bond mm-hmm. because everybody crowded into it mm, to, you don't have to, to it. get that dividend yield, right? Pay, get paid to wait, right? Um and now they don't have to hang out in AT&T anymore. And look at what that stock has done. It, mm-hmm. it hasn't done well. And, and, and we'll leave it at that. So I think equities do have competition in f- as an income producer. And I think mm-hmm. that's healthy for the people who want that safe... Bond proxy. Bond. Yeah. Right. Not proxy, right? They want a bond. Yeah. And they've been forced to not own to bonds. To own those proxies. Right? Right. So... So that's good news for those people, and it doesn't have to be bad news for equities. There's just a rebalancing, right? 
<laughs> yeah, John, you mentioned normalization. I think that's the best way to put it because before capital was just being misallocated and people were going way out on the risk spectrum for just to pick up some incremental yield. Um, so I think normalization, and we've talked about normalization in a wide range of things, whether it be the economy, the supply chain. Um, I think it's truly just capital being normalized. Right. Jordan, I think you just said the most intelligent thing that's been said in this podcast, and 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 that is capital was being misallocated. When capital is free, meaning the cost of capital is zero because interest rates are zero, all you're looking at is nominal rates of return. The risk that you're taking it doesn't factor into the equation, and so capital really does get misallocated. And when more, that capital cost has a cost, I think we become better allocators of that capital, right? That actually bleeds through not just investing but into corporate finance, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we could talk for hours about the misallocation of capital within corporate Let's America. Go, but, okay. but, but, you, but you know what I mean? Talking about uh, loading up on debt basically to be buying back shares and all of those things, and mm-hmm. you're starting to see the effects of that misallocation of capital there as well, where companies perhaps have more leverage um, and they're all of a sudden having to roll over rates at higher interest rates and things like that. So that misallocation of capital really is uh, well said. And it it was sort of, a, I mean, it permeated throughout the entire financial landscape. And not we're just starting yes. to see who allocated capital well and, and who didn't, right? There right. was a period of time there. I, I mean, I remember several conversations with with clients where, hey, I've got this pool of money. I'm going to be using it for down payment on a house in, in six months. Should I get into the market? And at the time, it's like, <laughs> I mean, the market just keep on going up. Sure. Now, that's that's not even a, a thought. Right. You shouldn't. You, sh- you should never should have. It should be in crypto. It should be in crypto, <laughs> yes. exactly. You should never have. That should not, never have actually been a decision. No, yeah. it should be. Funds for saving are meant to be saved and funds for investing are meant to be invested. I think that mindset is, again, going back to the normalization. Yeah, I mean, I I hope we return to a world where return per unit of risk, and I realize this is a self-serving plug for tandem, but, but return per unit of risk should matter. And when interest rates were zero, it didn't. The only thing that mattered was return, right? Mm -hmm. So um, let's, let's, Start to move towards the the finish line here. Um, Let me just announce to the audience, if you guys are regular readers or listeners of our content, we've sort of reshuffled the deck here. Billy still writes observations, and that just came out last week, I think, right? Um, But Ben no longer uh, co-writes notes from the trading desk. Annie Klopstock still writes part of notes from the trading desk. And she's been, Annie, you've been writing that for a year or so now. But Jordan Watson has uh, moved over to take Ben's place on notes. And Ben now has sole responsibility for the tandem report. Um, so I, I think that's fun for all of you to, to sort of spread your wings and, and, and contribute to our content. But I, I bring this up because... I think this is a good way to sort of draw this podcast toward a conclusion. There's a lot going on in the world. Um, 
my view is that it's white noise and it really should not. It's fun to talk about. It's fun to argue about. We get passionate about it. But if it's affecting your investment decision-making process, I believe that's a mistake. And Ben, you wrote a really nice piece in your commentary section of of the Tandem Report um, about our two pillars. And I wonder if you could just give the Cliss Notes version of uh, of that and how it might apply to what's going on in the world. And then Jordan and Billy, please feel free to chime in, even though you didn't write it. Yeah, so at Tandem, uh, really everything that we try to do when it comes to investing your money or your client's money uh, can sort of be traced back to these two pillars. And the first pillar is that we want to deliver a more consistent, more repeatable, and less volatile investment experience. Uh, We blame volatility for making us be emotional investors and for making people do the wrong thing at the wrong time. And our hope is that by delivering or attempting to deliver a less volatile experience, we're hopefully able to keep folks invested, um, which to us is an important part of achieving one's financial goals because getting in and out um, can be really tough to do. Uh, So we think it's more important to limit risk rather than trying to be a market timer, um, which can be sort of foolhardy. Control risk, right? Control risk, know when to add to risk, know when to take risk off the table, which is very different than saying, should I be in this market or should I be out of this market? So anyways, that first pillar, more consistent, more repeatable, less volatile investment investment experience. The second pillar, and I still feel silly saying this, but it's so true and it is unfortunately unique in my opinion, <laughs> but it's our job to buy low and sell high. And that doesn't happen all on one day. It doesn't happen all at the same time. It doesn't happen because today on November 14th, the market is up 2% or because the market could be down 2% someday soon, right? It happens because an individual stock is being signaled as being unsustainably undervalued in our model. And we would add to that stock or it happens because a stock is being signaled to be unsustainably overvalued and we would take money off the table. And to us, That is how you buy low and sell high one stock at a time. And that, to us, can help lead to a more consistent, more repeatable, and less volatile investment experience, right? So they're they're really sort of two pillars, but very intertwined. I think that's well said, and I think it was well written. And I've gotten a lot of feedback on that column. Real quick, I'm curious to see who around this table thinks that next time, when we are together in February... um, We'll be talking about a soft landing, hard landing, or no landing. <laughs> I feel like the picture will become more clear by then. I certainly hope so. I was about to say I hope so because <laughs> I've been writing the same thing for a while now. Um, it'd be nice to to change it up a bit. But, but unless inflation ticks higher, then the Fed has seemed to run its course. They've also been very clear, though, that if it if inflation does pop back up, they will continue to raise rates. But barring that, you can sort of figure out what's going on there. A little bit more, right? So hopefully, I do think it's interesting, though, that as aggressive as the Fed has been, and as aggressive as their words have been, this market still believes that if we have a stumble in the economy, then all bets are off, and the Fed is going to become extremely accommodative again. Don't you sense that that's what that's what the market 
is saying. I'm not saying that's what the, the Fed, Fed is saying. I mean, they clearly had pretty much pushed against yeah. against yeah. that narrative for yeah. since Jackson Hole of 2022. Mm. Chair Powell came out and said he's pushing this us into a recession to be able to to break the back of yeah, inflation. Yeah, that Volcker like yeah. speech where he said households will need to see some pain, right? And TBD, if households have seen that pain, right, we'll get a good read through on the consumer with some retailers about to report consumer sales tomorrow, but, uh, or retail sales, I should say. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, we've been talking about the same topic for months now, but you know, Billy pointed out earlier weakness in the jobs market. We'll keep an eye on that and, uh, and we'll see where things go. Good job guys. Listener, thank you for hanging with us for this time. You've been listening to Tandem Talk, episode 14. I am joined by the three CFAs and me, the nonconformist non-CFA. <laughs> Jordan Watson, Ben Carew, Billy Little, thank you very much. Um, behind the scenes, we are joined by Lindsay Collins of LMC Sound System. She is our audio and sound engineer and the voice of Tandem's three periodicals. Um, we're joined by producer, director, and creator of this podcast, Elaine Natoli. Our co-producers are Ariel Davis and Paisley Lewis. And I want to acknowledge Annie Klopstock from our investment team that is sitting in as well. This room is incredibly hot because Billy was cold and we've all <laughs> suffered through it. Um, this podcast and its, its previous iterations are available wherever you can find podcasts. They're all available on our website at tandemadvisors.com or streaming through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, and Spotify. We thank you for your time. We hope you found it valuable or at least entertaining. Until next time, this has been Tandem Talk. Tandem Talk is hosted by Tandem's investment team of John Carew, Billy Little, Ben Carew, and Jordan Watson. Tandem Talk is co-produced by Elaine Natoli and Lindsay Collins with LMC Sound System. Tandem Investment Advisors Incorporated is an SEC registered investment advisor. This podcast is for informational purposes only and shall not constitute or be considered financial, tax, or investment advice or an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any product, service, or security. Tandem Investment Advisors Incorporated does not represent that the securities, products, or services discussed on this podcast are suitable for any particular investor. Indices are unmanaged and not available for direct investment. Please consult your financial advisor before making any investment decisions. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All past portfolio purchases and sales are available upon request. All performance figures, data points, charts, and graphs contained in this report are derived from publicly available sources believed to be reliable. Tandem makes no representation as to the accuracy of these numbers, nor should they be construed as any representation of past or future performance.